Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name's Neil Headley. Special bonus episode for you this week in the middle of what frankly was an unexpected COVID-induced hiatus. It, it kind of felt a little like the abbreviated 2020 Major League Baseball season. We've been off long enough now that we're actually gearing up for a full-length season three of the show, complete with a new website and a pile of new sleep-obsessed content that will be flowing in your direction on a regular basis. We're going to announce launch day soon on all our social places. You can follow us there at Get Your Snooze On, or you can hit our website at thesnoozebutton.com. Quick nod to our friends at Nexus Web Hosting, who have an insane summer special going on now that allows me to offer you a special 50% off coupon. So if you go to the website, neilsentme.com, you'll find all the details there. Nexus is step one of every single project that I'm involved in. I can't recommend them highly enough, but to get the deal, you got to go to this website, neilsentme.com. Now, I made a reference a minute ago to Major League Baseball, and sure enough, here we are in the middle of a pretty exciting NBA final. Lots of questions out there in social media uh, about things happening on the mental side of the ball, and that's where this week's guest comes in. He is the Director of Wellness and Development of the 2019 NBA champion Toronto Raptors, and as such, he deals with everything, including sleep, that is north of the neck for that elite group of athletes. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Alex Auerbach. Alex, I'm going to start you with the very same first question that everybody that's ever been on the show and everyone that ever will be on the show gets. It's always the same question. How'd you sleep last night? Very well. Thank you. Good. How does What's very well look like for you? Very well for me is somewhere in the ballpark of seven to eight hours, largely uninterrupted. Um, and, and I think sort of quiet and, and restful. I don't often remember like dreams or anything like that personally. Um, but if I'm in that seven to eight ballpark and not waking up frequently, I'm, I'm usually pretty good. Um, we're going to get into, uh, I like that you said ballpark twice so far, because we're going to get into your work with athletes in, uh, in a minute. Um, first thing I've got to, you're not related to red, are you? Uh, so this is always a question that comes up. I, the short answer is I don't really know the exact relation, though I have been told there is one. So because I, I look tried. at your last name, and how do you look at your last name and you think, oh yeah, legend, basketball legend, and then you see that you are at least right now tied to basketball, and I go, okay, there's got to be some kind of correlation there. It's certainly a fortuitous last name to have in the current circumstance, but I, I don't know the exact connection. I am in the process of trying to figure it out. If, if it does ex in fact exist, I at one point had a camp counselor when I was much younger who supposedly did the research and shared with me that it was true, which was cool. Nice. Um, but as I have gotten older, it's become more important to confirm for myself. Sure. You, we'll, we'll, we'll try and get you sent one of those little DNA kits that you can get in the mail or whatever. I'm, I'm not even sure how they work. They scare me a little bit. But, you know. <laughs> um, let, so there's a lot to dig into here. Uh, the, the, the thing I want to touch on first in all of the work that you do with athletes, because the work that you do with athletes isn't just limited to sleep. It's it's everything north of your neck. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested if there is a point where for an athlete, male or female, um, if the immortality of youth 
sort of takes a back seat and people become more interested in just doing the things that are going to work for them. Is there is there an age where that happens or do athletes just always think, no, I'm going to I'm I'm good. I'm immortal. I, nothing can hurt me. I'm going to be fine. That's a great question. I don't know if there's a specific age where it happens, but I think what my experience has shown so far is there's kind of these different milestones players hit or different challenges they bump into when they start to then figure out that there might they might need to take a different path or try something new to overcome a new obstacle that they haven't faced before. And so that um, can often lead to sort of confronting that immortality. So the most maybe prevalent or common one that people see is injury, right? Um, you know, if you tear an ACL or, you know, have a blowout in Achilles, that can be, you know, a real identity shaker in terms of being withdrawn from the team, having to explore who you are away from the team context, away from being a performer. Um, and it's sort of like, a, an early identity crisis in a lot of ways uh, for athletes when they're confronted with an injury. But I think other sorts of obstacles can prompt the same kind of thoughtfulness and reflection. And then I think, you know, there is a point um, as athletes age, right, that, you know, you sort of proverbially lose a step and you have to come up with alternative ways to maintain your high performance. And so, you know, for some athletes that might be doubling down on the physical training or spending more time on rehab and prehab. And for some athletes, it's a greater incorporation of the mental side, learning how to rest and recover more effectively. Um, but everyone, I think, at the elite level is looking for a way to get a competitive edge. It just sort of takes... Um, you know, there are different stigmas or challenges that you have to navigate in each domain that, that also factor into that. One of the most interesting recovery stories that I can think of in the last decade, and it's pertinent to the geography that you and I are in, certainly, but it's also, I think, interesting because this was a uh, of uh, for the year that it happened, it was one of the biggest stories in sports. Was Marcus Stroman from the Toronto when at the time from the Toronto Blue Jays when he blew out a knee and then basically ended up coming back about a year earlier than anyone predicted he would be able to come back and in fact was dominant almost immediately upon his return. Uh, is that kind of drive common among elite athletes, or was he just sort of a freak of nature? With all due respect to Marcus. Um, I think I think it is common. I think that the way it manifests is different. Um, so, you know, and it's also there are other functional people kind of in the context that would shape some of that. Right. So if you've got, um, you know, a, a team of docs or athletic medicine folks who are um, you know, have have a different kind of level of freedom to sort of work with you or you're working with a really specialized group or you feel different pressures from family, like all that stuff can sort of coalesce and shape what your return looks like. And then there's also the functional aspects of where you are in a season and stuff, right? So if you maybe tear an ACL and you've got, you know, 30% left of the current season, that might extend your runway into rehab for the next season. Whereas if it's at the start of the season, maybe you wanna you know, hurry some elements of it up to get back for the playoffs. So there's all sorts of things that go into that kind of recovery. Um, but generally I think people as a whole and certainly elite athletes are just driven to be the best that they can be, right? But how that manifests and how people deal with the different obstacles they hit like an injury um, is certainly different. And so you do find that some athletes will respond to an injury with kind of that increased sense of resolve 
um, that motivation to respond and get back as quickly as possible. Um, and I think some of that's shaped by the social and contextual factors I mentioned before. And then you'll have athletes who, you know, need to take some time to sort of reflect and, um, you know, it might impact in a more what we might perceive as like a negative way. I kind of think of it as more of like a, a little bit of a stop sign and a slow down and reflect than it is like, oh, my goodness, you're, you know, really taking this hard. It's like, well, this is just a normal part of your identity development and adversity affects people differently. And so here we are. How often does that stop sign not appear right away you know what i mean does does the drive ever get in the way in your experience are there are there people who don't take to the you just need to rest message right out of the gate and that ends up getting in the way yeah i mean i think certainly culturally in sport for a really long time there's been a drive to just do more work harder you know lift more get bigger faster stronger all those things are are highly relevant in this space and it's really been pretty recent i think where people have started to pay more attention to things like sleep things like recovery and and i mean some of it is kind of the interesting historical sports stuff that I, i love thinking about like you know early on in sport the head coach was the athletic trainer and the sports psychologist you know and the sleep doc and you know the strength coach right and so at that point volume of work was almost like a necessity to get everything done and as sport has become more specialized we've started to pay different levels of attention to those different aspects and be more mindful and sort of sports psychology and psychology is i think the newest sort of player um, with a seat at the table and that's brought along with it more of this idea about thinking about rest more productively and like an investment um, that maybe historically. And so I think culturally some of that's changing a little bit right now. Um, but I think generally, you know, as a society, I think at least in American culture where a lot of sport resides um, that I'm used to, there is just a premium placed on working more and working harder. Um, and, and often more is kind of in conflict with rest. This is sort of related to one of the first questions that I asked, but but to me, contextually different is it easier to convince uh, you know a 35 year old player that rest is more important than it is a rookie because the 35 year old is maybe now looking for ways to extend their career um yeah i I think simply the simple answer is yes um I, i think you know the reasoning might be extending their career but there's also like energy differences and stuff too right you know if you're a rookie who's just joined the league and you're maybe playing three or four minutes a game, you know, there might be motivation to go work out after the game or show up and do two a days or do something differently um, or do, you know, more work than there would be for the veteran who's in his 30s who played 35 minutes, you know. And so on top of the age factor and the, you know, body wear factor, there's also the differences in how much time has been played, what's gone into the performance, those kinds of things that that factor in. But I do think as athletes mature generally, uh, maybe it's less a function of like, you know, static age number and more function of just developmental player maturity and time in the league. I do think there starts to be an increased premium on things like like rest or recovery. And I think, you know, not necessarily always rest and recovery in terms of like completely off your feet, not doing anything. Um, but rest and recovery in terms of some of the active things we think about too, like a mindfulness or prehab or, you know, stretching, Pilates, yoga, these different things that, you know, help the body and mind heal and recover, but might also involve some movement or some more active doing of stuff. 
it's interesting too. You look at different players, and and I'll go back to because I started thinking about Marcus Stroman. I started thinking about baseball players. So let me jump over to baseball for a second, and and maybe even tie in a couple of other sports. You look at, for example, a Tom Brady, whose training regimen is ridiculous, and you look at Tom Brady, and you go, that guy right there is a finely tuned athlete. And you look at some other players, like you know, I start thinking about legendary baseball players, John Cruck, and stuff like that, who look like they just put down three cheeseburgers before they picked up the bat and walked out onto the field, you know, and and so I think people sometimes look at that and they go, okay, maybe it's not all in the training. Maybe it's not all in the, how how do you explain, for example, to a player or, or even justify the difference between the two different types of apparently high performance athletes? Yeah, I think my argument might be that for the guy who eats three cheeseburgers before he goes out to bat, that uh, he might perform even better if he didn't eat the cheeseburgers, right? Um, and that's a, obviously a slippery slope because I think everyone can use a good cheeseburger once in a while. <laughs> but but I think you know what Tom Brady has done, if we're using him as the example that's, that's spectacular, is I think he's really gone out of his way to max out every dimension of his performance and preparation. Um, and so maybe that's made him or contributed to how elite he is. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of us would in the performance side would look at that as kind of a model of what someone maxing out really looks like. And a lot of the way I think about this stuff is just odds of putting yourself in a position to be successful. So a lot of sport is luck, too. Right. And, and so if you're a guy like Tom Brady, what you've done by training that way is you've basically controlled all of the odds that you can control and put yourself in the best position to be successful, knowing that you really can't control the other 21 guys on the field completely when you're on the field. Um, And so I think, you know, the players who are not doing that doesn't mean that you can't be successful. It just may mean that you're leaving more up to chance than you need to. Um, And so that's where I think you could start to have some of those conversations, which is, you know, it's not necessarily that doing all of these things that Tom Brady does means you're going to be the next Tom Brady, but I would argue that it does increase your odds of being a successful performer. Um, and so I, I think of them as, you know, not necessarily competing, but they, they kind of work together. Like, sure, you, you could eat a whole pizza and then go play a basketball game. I don't know that that's going to be the best basketball game you've ever played um, <laughs> or that you could do that consistently over time. Right. I think that's the other thing that people um look at a lot in sport is these sort of like one-off great performances you know kobe scores 81 or brett Favre after the passing of his father and those are players who you know we admire those performances but they're consistently also overperforming or outperforming everybody else and i think a lot of that is uh what we should pay maybe more attention to that's the stuff that's more interesting to me is how do you kind of get to and maintain that high performance versus looking at these peak performances. And so I think as you start to work with players on thinking about consistent high performance versus how do you just kind of get through the day to day, hoping that you hit a peak performance once in a while, I think you could start to make progress on some of that stuff. I know I'm going to get a note from somebody about uh, referring to John Cruck as a legendary baseball player, but let's let's take someone of a similar physique, uh, Babe Ruth, for example, who was legendary, you know, drinker, eater, smoker. I think there are shots of him standing in the batter's box with a cigar in his mouth and things like that, who people would have argued that if Babe Ruth had taken better care of himself, there's two schools of thought here, if he had taken better care of himself, he would have been even better 
And there's other people that say, no, no, it's all the weight and all of those things that made Babe Ruth the player that he was. And a lot of who Babe Ruth was came from the, the player that he was north of his neck. So which side of that would you fall on? Oh, I think uh, sport is really, really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think to distill it down to one or the other, I think is is tough. I think again if i look at my experience and the folks i've worked with you know i think everyone it's, it's like any strength i think you know people find certain strengths that they lean on more than others perhaps because they feel more comfortable or it's a more part of their identity whatever that might be and so you know maybe babe ruth centered more of his identity on what happens north of the neck um, and, and so that was a factor and something he believed in and then i think you have other players or, or athletes who might believe that you know really it's it's the body that's sort of the vehicle for performance i think for me i'd argue it's it's a both and it's not an either or um but i think it's it's you know there's also a lot to be said for kind of what you believe in and what you focus on too well, and let's go down a road I wasn't expecting you to go down, but that's what I love about these conversations. When 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 they start to evolve and become fun, there's a million different roads you can go down. Um, let's talk about the psychology behind, for example, performance-enhancing drugs, because I'm sure as we talk about the Babe Ruth example, and let's take it to a completely different example where you have I don't want to name names because then that you know et, et cetera. We we've we've all heard about players who take these substances that make them completely jacked, and there are people who will make the argument that there are some sports where being bigger doesn't necessarily work in your favor. And for example, there are people that'll say that yes, because you've put on you know an extra twenty five pounds of muscle, maybe you're going to be able to hit the ball farther, but you're not going to be able to swing the bat as hard. For example, um, other other sports bring different kinds of that things to the table with them. But for some players, there is that psychology of this is what I absolutely need to do to compete. How do you combat that for a person who, like you, works with the north of the neck part of the player? Yeah, I think like any, you know, anytime when someone's maybe thinking about some kind of compensatory mechanism for themselves or for performance, I, I think it's about trying to understand, for me, it's about trying to understand sort of the perceived deficit and then what someone is hoping for, what they're hoping to accomplish. And so I think, you know, if I reflect back on some of the times when maybe it's a little bit more uh, in our face, the use of performance enhancing drugs than it is right now, you know, I think some of that is about competition, but some of that is about fear. Um, and some of that's about, you know, not wanting to be left behind, being able to adapt and, and those kinds of things. And so those are all very real human concerns and very real things to to try to imagine how you can compensate for. And then I think like anything, there are maybe healthier, more productive ways to compensate. And then there are other ways that, um, you know, we might not fully understand the full range of effects of those compensatory mechanisms. But I think, you know, in professional sports, certainly there's a premium placed on competitive advantage. And so I think that's just an inherent part of the culture is that you may um, end up with not necessarily performance enhancing drugs as the only example, but different ways that people are trying to gain a little bit of an edge. I think that's inherent in a competitive landscape. Um, but then I think there's sort of the, the dark side, if you will, of that too, which is, you know, what's motivating some of that, that use. Well, 
And let's bring that full circle back around to what the show's about. Let's talk about the compensatory mechanisms for sleep. Because I'm sure that if in, and, and you know, the work you're doing, for example, with the Toronto Raptors, I'm sure that if somebody comes to you post-game, pre-game, whatever, even in the off-season says, I'm having a really hard time sleeping. I'm guessing you don't reach into a drawer for a bottle of Ambien. I mean, there's there's got to be obviously things that are better options, you know, and, and we deal on the show all the time with what a terrible option for anybody, things like Ambien, or even we can have the melatonin argument uh, as well about whether that actually does anything for anybody because the science says it doesn't. But... Um, what do you do in a case where a player comes to you and one of the things that seems to be their biggest problem is getting enough rest, getting enough sleep? Yeah, I, I think great question. Um, and I'm glad you're, you're raising this because this is very common. And, and even before I was with the Raptors, when I was still working in college athletics, this is you know a concern that players and athletes tend to lead off with um, because it's a, it's a huge part of how they're functioning and it's a huge part of their their world and so i think the first thing is to just examine you know the normal kind of barriers that we find in this age group to sleep right so things like how late are you using your phone how late are you playing video games how late are you watching television what does that look like what are you doing before bed um you know what kinds of activities are you involved in when you're having you know when you want to go to bed like if you're you know, out until 2.30 in the morning and then you want to try to go to bed at 2.45, like it's just going to be harder, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, start to look at some of the real behavioral things that are going on that we might be able to address um, and really sort of highlighting or focusing on anything that might sort of increase arousal or move us away from sleep. Um, you know, so I think using your cell phone is a great one, but, you know, particularly like social media, you know, if you're scrolling through, Twitter or Instagram and and reading all these comments that people are making about your most recent performance, good, bad, or the otherwise, right? Like that's a little bit of a, um, a stimulator for people and, and, you know, something that sort of increases arousal. And so we want to look at that specifically um, and then try to just make, you know, subtle changes and marginal improvements. I think I, I try to come at it from kind of a scientist perspective and, and running little experiments like, hey, let's try this one thing and see how that goes. And I think there are sort of, you know, the normal sleep hygiene things you could do with people that, that you've had folks on the show who are much more competent than I am in that area and, and probably can give a much better overview of what that looks like than I could. Um, but, you know, I try to bring some of that stuff in. But I, I think oftentimes, you know, you just have to start with something. And so it's it's looking for those little places of intervention as a, as a starting point and then monitoring progress and seeing what we can refine from there. One thing, and it's interesting that you point to some of the other people who've been on the show that can talk about other aspects of sleep, but there is one that I want to zero in on with you is an acute sleep problem. For example, you know, rather than someone who has chronic sleep issues, and this may be beyond the scope of anything that you've ever dealt with, but I have a hunch it's not. Uh, let me create a hypothetical scenario for you. And because you work with a team that has, you know, the players have rings. Um, and, and so this is something I think you can speak to in particular. Hypothetical, it's game seven tomorrow. And you're in that starting five. Um, and it's, is, is there something you can do to combat 
the voices, the adrenaline, the everything else that's going on? Or have you even gotten a call? Maybe, I don't even know if this ever happens, but I envision if I'm like you and game seven is tomorrow, I'm I'm waiting for the phone to ring at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock in the morning from somebody who's having some kind of issue that's preventing them from getting rest, preventing them from getting to sleep. And they're worried about what their performance is going to be like because of it. Does that ever happen? And if it does, then what? Yeah. So I, I think to me where we might steer wrong to start is only thinking about it as this isolated incident, right? I've been thinking a, a lot about this since we, we first connected. And I think actually the preparation for the game seven sleep starts in the preseason, uh, the same way that preparation for game seven starts in the preseason. And I, I think a lot of that is if you've built you know, if you think of sleep from a behavioral perspective and, and, you know, pairing your bed with sleep and all those things that come with, you know, some of the CBTI stuff and, and kind of retraining, um, you know, I think if you practice good sleep behaviors leading up to game seven, that, that ultimately those good sleep behaviors should play a big part in, in how you sleep the night before the big game. Um, and that doesn't mean that the, the pressure or circumstances aren't different, but I, I think there is real, you know, that kind of behavioral pattern is a real mental skill. And so, you know, I think like anything in that circumstance, it's sort of helping people lean on the fundamentals of what usually helps them sleep well. It's, um, you know, trying to combat some of the things that typically interfere with good sleep, right? Like ruminative thinking and stuff that might, you know, we might all expect to go on the night before any big performance, whether it's game seven or a big meeting, right? We're all up thinking about how it's going to go and, and that kind of stuff. And so I think the more we can sort of detach from that and, you know, practice that kind of keeping it in perspective, not getting hooked by the ruminating, stepping back, relaxing, accepting, being, you know, trying to sort of go through the process that we would go through in preparation for any performance. It's like going through the process of preparation for great sleep. Um, and, and then I think the final thing is, is one I've taken from one of your other guests, Dr. Grandner, but it's, it's a nugget I've stored for forever is, you know, I think one simple way to, to start to move the needle in some of these smaller things is to reframe sleep as an investment in that performance. And so, you know, I think one of the things that maybe underlies that kind of, um, not sleeping before the big game is sometimes a feeling of not being prepared, right? Or not doing everything that you could have done or sort of going down the rabbit hole and the mental checklist of, is there anything I missed? Or what about this? Or what about that? Um, and I think, you know, simply reframing sleep as an investment in tomorrow's performance, knowing that if you sleep well tonight, you know, that's actually going to help you deal with those novel circumstances tomorrow. You don't need to plan for it all right now, right? It, it's more about being prepared to take on whatever comes up tomorrow and you'll be better positioned to do that with a well-rested body and mind, that subtle nudge, I think, can, can go a long way. Um, and so those would be some of the things that I would be thinking about um, and, and how I might be approaching that. And then it becomes, you know, if you've done the sleep preparation work from preseason, then this is like anything, like any other game. It's just like getting ready for any other game. And, and I think, you know, rightfully so, perhaps maybe fans and media and sort of public perception will say that this game is is more important. And I think internally, sometimes we might even say, you know, this there's more weight placed on a game seven, right? Because your season may end or whatever. You can be the champion or not be the champion. But ultimately, the game is still 48 minutes long. You have the same, you know, two sets of five players out on the court. You're running the same offense. You're running the same defense. Yeah, you're going to have some changes and all that stuff. But we're not 
really doing anything novel, right? And these players are all incredible experts and elite performers in that particular domain. And so trust your training and trust your preparation and, and trust that you are ready for this moment, um, sort of independently from all of those those other sort of narratives that could be out there. And so I think if you prepare that way, you can help yourself a lot with that game seven sleep. I talk sometimes about a study that Ravi Alada did from Northwestern University where Ravi studied 40 years of baseball statistics and he was looking in particular at uh, jet lag and the impact that it had. He wanted to dig down and see if there was a statistic somewhere that could demonstrate that jet lag had an impact on performance. And the one thing that he found, and it was a, pardon the pun, slam dunk, was that a jet lagged pitcher would cough up more home runs. Hmm. Is there any, uh, and, and that was the only stat that seemed to be impacted, was if you are a pit pitcher who is jet lag, you will give up more home runs. Not necessarily more runs in general. You'll just cough up and or more hits or anything like that, more walks. Nope, home runs was the only thing that was impacted by that. First of all, do you know if there's a similar study that's ever been done of basketball players, if there's something that, because to me, basketball moves much, because it moves so much faster than baseball does. To me, cognition is an incredibly important piece of a basketball player's day-to-day experience. And, you know, we go back to the very first episode of the show we ever did with Adrian Owen, where we talked about the impact that sleep can have on cognition. Do you see any, do you see any signs? Is there anything you can see in a player while they're out on the court or uh, statistically or anything like that, that points you in the direction of, I think we need to examine how much rest they're getting? Yeah. So there was, um, an article that came out not too, too long ago. It was more of like a naturalistic study, you know, examining the differences in performance between the bubble and uh, the regular season from last year because the bubble obviously had no travel. It had a number of advantages in terms of rest. And so they did sort of find, I think the way they described it was that actually home court advantage might be more a function of not traveling than than anything else. Um, and you know there are different effects going west to east versus east to west and, and those sorts of things. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head, you know, what specific numbers emerged from that study that sort of demonstrated that point, although I do know that there was something in there around points per game um, and and turnovers, I believe, was the other one. And then um, I know Dr. Graner has a colleague, Dr. Jonathan Charest in Canada as well, who's done some work on, you know, different kind of more nuanced basketball statistics around performance based on sleep. and again, off the top of my head, couldn't rattle off to you the different the different stats that would be involved in that. But I know he's done some work on that. And, and I think that's noteworthy also. And then I think, you know, to answer the second part of your question in terms of behavioral stuff, I think the cognition element is is important. You know, I think so. I, I do look for things like decision making. I do look for things like, you know, paying attention in the game. Right. And can you you can sort of spot if you watch close enough um, from my angle, you can see moments where players sort of check in, check out or lose focus and and make what we would call sort of mental mistakes. Um, Though I don't have any like real data on my end to say, well, actually, the mental mistakes are more or less, you know, at at any given point. Um, But the other thing I I look for um, less cognitive is is emotion regulation, um, because that's another element we know that's affected a lot by sleep, too. And so, you know, if we I, I pay close attention to 
how the players are emotionally processing the game and processing the normal sort of ups and downs and frustrations of performance. Um, because like, like you're saying, basketball is a very fluid game and, and things change a lot over the course of 48 minutes. Um, and so I think you can sort of get a sense of, of where people are. And some of it's maybe like personality dynamics and personality dimensions in terms of how they show up and what they express. But some of it is, you know, if you see something kind of out of the ordinary for a particular player in terms of how they're expressing themselves or processing emotionally, um, I think that's noteworthy to keep an eye on for sleep as well. I'm interested, we've talked a lot about a lot of different sports. Um, one of the one of the sports that seems to have stepped out the most in terms of promoting mental health. You know, one of the reasons that I love to have Michael Grander on the show and that I like to have uh, people like you and Chris Winter and others on the show who work with athletes is because I, I hope that the message out of all of these conversations for the layperson becomes, listen, if sleep is an important part of performance for an elite athlete, maybe it's something that I need to look at for my own life as well. You know, just because I, I don't swing a bat or bounce a ball for a living, uh, maybe my work in my office or at my factory or whatever it is, maybe that work can be enhanced. Uh, maybe my overall health can be enhanced just by getting better rest. The NFL, I feel like, has done an amazing job lately of pushing forth this idea to the general public that mental health is important. I'm reminded of the TV commercial that's out there where you've got one of the players saying, it's okay to not be okay. Is that are you seeing any payoffs from the work that various sports organizations and whatnot are doing in terms of getting the mental health message out to the general public? Do you think that's resonating? I, I do. I, I mean, I think, you know, in basketball, I can point to the Kevin Loves and the DeMar DeRozans and the stories that they've shared. And I think kind of internally across players, I think there's a level of admiration for that courage to to speak out and share your story and and um you know i think normalize the conversation for a public that looks up to these players and and really admires the work that they do and then nfl wise i can certainly think of like hayden hurst and dak prescott as good examples um and so i, I think there is there are probably a number of benefits to this kind of you know discussion and dialogue right so one is I think humanizing elite athletes is a, a pretty important part of, of this experience on the player side. Uh, you know, I think it's easy for people to look at them and, and think, wow, they must have, you know, everything and, and life must be so grand and, and easy. And um, I, I think there's real merit to still understanding that that these players are, are real people with real feelings and real challenges, just like the rest of us. And then I think, you know, it sort of works in reverse, too, which is like if if people see them as human and more accessible and, and like me, then I think people can start to connect with, you know what, like it's actually, you know, Hayden Hurst feels the way that I feel or, you know, Dak Prescott or recently I heard Steph Curry on a podcast and it's like, yeah, you know, th those people think about it the way that I feel. And I think, you know, a next step I'd love to see the happen kind of in the general public, I think, but for certainly for you know, people who, who go to work and think about, you know, how they use sleep as a work enhancer. I, you know, I think all of us are high performers in something that we're doing, right? Like whether it's um, working from home, working remotely, going to an office, taking care of kids, like those are all performance events, right? And nobody wants to 
uh, just be average at raising their kids, right? We all want to be the best we can be at raising our kids. And we have different environmental constraints or different things that we want to accomplish, um, you know, in those domains. But ultimately, we're all performers in our own world. And so I hope that these conversations start to get people to think about being a performer in their own way. And, and similarly, think of sleep as an important part of their performance in their own way. And I don't think it matters so much, you know, what you're doing or what your role is or how public or not public it is or, you know, how many people are involved or if it's your, you know, just your close nuclear family or you're working as a CEO of a giant organization, like ultimately, um, you know, we all want to be great at what it is we're doing. And I don't think anyone's role is more or less important in that. I think we all play a part in shaping the larger cultural narrative of, you know, rest and recovery is an important part of holistic health and all of us trying to be our best and, and recognizing and appreciating that striving in one another, I think is one great way that these kind of stories can, can go a long way for helping change a little bit of that culture. The team slogan is we the North, but he the North of their necks. Alex, thanks for making room for this in your day today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. There you go, Dr. Alex Auerbach, the Director of Wellness and Development for the 2019 NBA Champion Toronto Raptors. The video episode of that one's going to be coming out soon on our YouTube channel, which you can find along with tons of other episodes and soon a completely new website when you go to thesnoozebutton.com. Remember to visit neilsentme.com for insane savings on the same web hosting infrastructure that's at the heart of everything I do until we get together again in a few weeks. My name's Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?